Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of From the Top. My name is Jake Lewis. It's great to have you listening. And on this podcast, I read to you the first chapter of a YA or middle grade novel. And I hope you like it so much that it makes you want to rush out and either get a copy from your local library or even pick up a copy of the book to own at a local independent bookstore, if there is one near you. Today's novel that we will be reading from is called Elatso, and that is spelled E-L-A-T-S-O-E. And it was written by Darcy Little Badger. So I hope you enjoy it. Let's get the show going. All right, so to kick off our show every week, I tell you a reflection that I have for last week's read here on this show. Last week, I read to you the first chapter from the novel 10 by Gretchen McNeil. And in that chapter, we find Meg and Minnie, two friends, high school kids, going to a uh, an all-exclusive party, it seems, on Henry Island. Uh, and Meg, or maybe it's Minnie, I can't tell and this is my this is my reflection i'll I'll just get right to the point it's confusing when authors have names for characters that are so similar now i know in real life there might be a friend who is a meg and a friend who is a mini but for some reason um when i'm reading uh i find it somewhat um annoying when it's hard for me to keep the characters separate in my mind because their names are similar meg and mini both kind of starting with M, obviously, and it, it gets confusing in my mind. So I, I think that was part of the reason as well that I gave um, 10, a score of nine on the Jayco meter last week. And I couldn't quite put my finger on it when I was describing my score last week. But I think part of that has to do with I was a little confused or getting the characters confused with each other because their names are kind of similar. That is this week's reflection. Let's go to the mailbag to see what you, the listeners, have written to me this week. This comes from Megan, and it says, Dear Mr. Lewis. Oh, how formal. Thank you, Megan. When you're reading a book out loud for the show or in your classes at school, how do you decide on what voices to do? Also, if you're only reading the chapter for the first time, as you say you do on this show, how do you know which character is speaking if you don't know what it says at the end of the quotation? Sincerely, Megan. Megan sounds like she's on to me, like this is all a big conspiracy theory that I've read all of these books and I'm lying to you. No. Uh, So to answer the first part of your question, Megan, how do I decide on what voices to do? Well, I I see if it says anything about how they speak. So if it's, uh, you know, someone who might be from the Midwest or the South, I might try to do a Midwestern or Southern accent or or really anywhere. Um, Of course, with accents, you have to be careful because you don't want to do a stereotype and and come off as sounding like you're making fun of them and offensive. Of course, I don't want to do that. I would rather just speak in my normal voice, even if that's not what the character in fact, sounds like to avoid any, um, you know, stereotyping. Um, but yeah, so I'll look at the how the author describes their voice or their age. Um, 
and, or, or their personality. So, you know, if they are kind of described as a bad guy, then they might try to make it sound a little bit more sinister. And for the second part of the question, how do I know which character is speaking if I can't always see to the end of the line uh, and I'm reading it for the first time? Um, well, sometimes my eye will scan real quick to the end of the line because, you know, when when um, writers write dialogue where characters speak, it's supposed to be, you know, a character speaks and you skip to the next line. So you can kind of see where uh, there might be a he said or you know, Megan said, or, you know, what have you. Um, but really, sometimes I screw up and I do the wrong voice. If you've listened to the show, you'll you'll remember there have been plenty of times where I've said, oh, wait, wrong voice. And I'll go back and I'll do it in the right voice after I've seen who says it. So those are the best answers that I can give you. Thank you for writing, Megan. And if anybody else would like to send me a letter or I should say an email uh, with any questions, comments, whatever, uh, it is from the top bookcast at gmail.com. And maybe your email will be the next one that I respond to. Before we begin reading chapter one of Elatso, we have what I like to call Attack of the Blurb, wherein I will pick out some key words or phrases from the blurb for the book Elatso. And they might seem a little disjointed or unconnected at first, but that's part of the fun, figuring out how they all fit together. So I'm ready. This is Attack of the Blurb for Elatso. Alternate Contemporary America. Ancestral Magics. Dead Animals. Ghost dog, car crash, great, 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 great grandmother, nefarious townsfolk, and finally, mysterious doctor. That is this week's Attack of the Blurb. And now it is time for chapter one of Elatso by Darcy Little Badger. And I picked out this book. One of the reasons why I picked out this book, the cover looks really cool. Um, that's, you know, one of the things I like about a book, if it looks attractive. Uh, but another reason I like it is because November, which is when this is airing, is National uh, American Indian Month. Um, and this, as I said, is by Darcy Lil Badger, who is a Native writer. And I believe it's about Native American peoples. So let's hear it. Chapter one. Ellie bought the life-size plastic skull at a garage sale. The goth neighbors were moving to Salem, and they could not fit an entire Halloween warehouse into their black van. After bringing the purchase home, she dug through her box of craft supplies and glued a pair of googly eyes in its shallow eye sockets. I got you a new friend, Kirby, Ellie said. Here, boy, come on. Kirby already fetched tennis balls and puppy toys. Sure, anything looked astonishing when it zipped across the room in the mouth of an invisible dog, but a floating googly skull would be extra special. Unfortunately, the skull terrified Kirby. He wouldn't get near it, much less touch it. 
Maybe it was possessed by a demonic vacuum cleaner. More likely, the skull just smelled weird. Judging by the soy candles and incense sticks at the garage sale, the neighbors enjoyed burning fragrant stuff. Look, a treat! Ellie put a cheese cube in the skull's mouth. Although ghosts didn't eat, Kirby enjoyed sniffing his old favorites. Chicken kibble, peanut butter, and cheddar. He'd been her best friend for 17 years, 12 alive and 5 dead. And Ellie was confident that if food couldn't persuade him to be brave, nothing would. Yum yum, she said. Smells cheesy. Skull friend won't hurt you. Kirby, in a fine example of the English Springer Spaniel breed, hid under the bed. Fine, Ellie said. We have all summer. She'd spent $5 on a gag, a gag that would not be abandoned after just one wasted cheese cube. Kirby had progressed a lot since his death. Ellie still wasn't allowed to bring him on school property, but since the sixth grade Howell incident, Kirby hadn't caused any trouble, and his cache of tricks had doubled. There, was, there were the mundane ones, sit, stay, heal, play dead, literally, wink, wink, and track sense. Moreover, the door had been opened to a bunch of marvelous supernatural powers. He just had to learn them without causing too much incidental chaos. So here we have our title character whose name is Ellie, which sounds a lot like the beginning of El Lotso. I wonder if Ellie is a nickname for El Lotso. Uh, maybe she is trying to um, not have uh, a name that sounds, you know, like difficult to say or unusual. So she goes by Ellie. That could be the reason. And she has a, well, a dead dog who she plays with that she sees. And uh, wouldn't that be nice if when your dog uh, passes away, you still sort of have your dog after death in a, in a ghost form, not quite the same as a real live dog, certainly, but uh, that is something that um, kind of registers with me because my dog right now is very old. He's 15, so older than Kirby was. Um, and, you know, when dogs get old, they, uh, you know, they're eventually going to uh, go to the Rainbow Bridge, as they say. So I would love to have my dog around in ghost form, although that might be kind of scary. But it sounds like Ellie uh, kind of uses that to her advantage by kind of weirding people out by having ghost dog Kirby, you know, bring a uh, ball across the yard or something. And it seems like nobody else sees Kirby except her because to them, just a ball floating across the yard and she did some pranks at school. So Ellie is also a bit of a funny character already. <laughs> Ellie ate the cheese and chucked a squeaky yellow bear plush across the room. It stopped mid-arc, suspended two feet above the gray carpet. The air around Buddy Bear shimmered and its head squished twice. Squeak, squeak! Good boy, Ellie said. Maybe, for Kirby's peace of mind, the skull should make a funny sound. A rattle? A wee scream? Bear Buddy flopped out of Kirby's mouth and landed on the hardwood floor with a pathetic half-squeak. Did I say Buddy Bear before? It's Bear Buddy. Kirby wasn't the kind of dog who treated Fetch like a game of keep-away. Bring Mr. Bear Buddy, Ellie said. Bring it. In response, Kirby turned fully visible, 
as if somebody had flipped a switch from shimmery transparent to opaque. You okay? Ellie asked. It took effort for the dead to be seen. He rarely became visible without her clear command to appear. What is it? Are you still scared? Does this help? She covered the skull with an old sweater. Instead of relaxing, Kirby tucked his tail and darted from the bedroom. As a reader, sometimes you assume one thing or think you know one thing about a book, but then you are corrected about it. And I think that's what's happened here. So just a few minutes ago, I said to you that Ellie can see Kirby, but nobody else can. And here we have learned that he's usually invisible to even to Ellie, uh, but with great effort, he can become visible. So I don't know if that means he can become visible to only Ellie or to everyone else. And it's just easier for Kirby, the dead dog, to stay invisible. And he's also, I think it's kind of funny, a ghost is scared of something. And, you know, ghosts are usually something that's pretty scary. I think that if somebody didn't expect to see their dead dog as a ghost, that would be kind of scary. And even if you did expect it, that would be kind of scary. Uh, but Kirby, the ghost, is scared very much by this skull. And so I'm asking myself, why? What is it about the skull, even when it's covered by a sweatshirt, that scares him so much? Hey, Ellie ran into the hall, but he wasn't there. Kirby, she called. Here, boy. He popped through the stucco wall, whining. Paranormal vibrations hummed through her bones. She felt like a tuning fork, one resonating with worry. He was anxious, terribly anxious. Why, the skull? No, he couldn't see that ridiculous thing anymore. When Ellie's grandfather had a heart attack, Kirby threw a fit, as if he could see Grandpa's pain. Maybe, to ghost dogs, emotions resembled radio signals, and the signals were strong when they belonged to a loved one. Could somebody be in pain? Somebody Kirby knew? Ellie's parents were at the movies with their phones turned off. Sitting in that dark theater, enjoying a rare but treasured date night, would it also be their last? Wow, wouldn't that be nice if people turned off their phones in movies? Sorry. No. No. Maybe? She tried calling them both. No answer. They were probably fine. That said, every time Ellie left the house, the oven was probably turned off. But she still double-checked its knobs. Ellie had to know, with absolute certainty, that her parents were safe. Okay, so this has given us, this last bit here has given us some other interesting information uh, about Ellie and uh, a, a prediction can be made about what's going to happen. So as far as Ellie goes, she is somehow in tune with the universe around her. She compares what she's feeling with Kirby being scared. She says she's like a tuning fork. She can feel the vibrations. Uh, and she is worried that Kirby is acting like this because he can sense uh, that someone he loves is maybe in danger. And I totally get that. Dogs can, you know, dogs can smell cancer. Dogs can 
really pick up on emotions. So that seems very realistic to me. And the first person or people that Ellie thinks about are her parents, but they're at the movies with their phones turned off. God bless you, parents, by the way. Um, You can tell I don't like it when I'm at the movies and people's phone rings, right? And so we know that what's going to happen next, most likely she's going to set out to go to the movies to find her parents. Let's see if I'm right. The sixth screen theater was five miles away from home, three miles if she cut across the river using the old railroad bridge. It had been close to traffic for years. Ellie couldn't remember the last time a train crossed the Herotonic River on its rusty tracks. Sometimes, as Ellie walked home from school, she noticed people on the abandoned bridge. It drew even greater crowds at night. Darkness protected graffiti artists. They climbed 40, 50, 60 feet above the river to paint the highest trusses. She wondered if the risk was worth the payoff. From the deck, a plummet into the Herotonic River might be survivable if the artist could swim and the river was calm. Much higher? Perhaps not. It was possible, likely even, that those who climbed bridges at night were more resilient than mere humans. If so, Ellie didn't want to meet them. She could handle mundane dangers like violent men with guns or knives, but every tunnel, bridge, and abandoned building in the city was allegedly home to monsters. She'd heard whispers about clans of teenage-bodied vampires, carnivorous mothmen, immortal serial killers, devil cults, cannibal families, and slender people. Even if most of the urban legends were fictitious, Ellie had a ghost dog companion. When it came to strange stuff, she could not be too open-minded. I don't know if what the author is describing here, what Ellie has heard, is meant to be like a metaphor, or if it's true. Like, actual mothmen and vampires and so on? Or is that just like, you know, stories that parents tell their kids to scare them? I do remember when I did the attack of the blurb, I said in alternate America. So maybe there are actual monsters and slender people, whatever those are, just really thin people, maybe um, living in this alternate America. And of course, the rickety old bridge is the shortcut, right? That is going to somehow be important to our story, whether Ellie goes there or, or what. Otherwise, why would they mention it? And why would the author mention falling from it if that was not some sort of hint or foreshadowing for later on in the story? It does say she could handle mundane dangers like violent men with guns or knives. Does that mean that she has handled that before? Otherwise, that would be kind of a weird thought to cross her mind if she's never had experience with that. At the front door, Ellie slipped into tennis shoes and a reflective athletic jacket. Her bike had red lights on its handlebars and seat. They might alert drivers to her presence, but she needed something stronger to illuminate her path across the bridge. See, she's going across the bridge. 
This is bad news. After a moment of frantic searching that left half of the kitchen cabinets yawning open, she grabbed the battery-powered flashlight from the cluttered drawer. Heal, Kirby, she said, and they stepped outside together. Ellie lived near the top of a small mountain. The ride downhill would be quick, if not safe. She fastened her helmet and pedaled her bike to the crack-latticed cement street. From a hundred-year-old oak tree that dominated her modest lawn, a barn owl hooted twice. When Ellie pinned it with her flashlight beam, the bird lighted from its branch and silently flew away. Damn it, Ellie said. Many owls, most owls, were just ordinary birds with a greater reputation for wisdom than they deserved. Ellie regularly volunteered at a raptor rehabilitation center. There, a great horned owl named Rosie fought everything that moved, including the bald eagle in a neighboring cage, veterinarians, handlers, rustling leaves, and its own shadow. Ellie's grandmother often said, a wise woman knows how to pick her battles. Ellie would add that an unwise bird nearly dies by attacking its reflection. The second kind of owl, though, owl with a capital O, was a bad omen times 10. Owl will wait until your life skirts the precipice of tragedy and shove you straight into the abyss. Native Americans are very in tune with the earth uh, and animals. And so Darth Darcy Little Badger, who wrote this novel, who is Native American, uh, is sharing with us part of the Native American culture or her tribe's culture where there is, you know, there are some owls. And by the way, a raptor is not raptor like a dinosaur. This is a bird that is called a raptor. But there is also this owl with a capital O, singular, and it's an omen, meaning it's a bad sign. And so we've got the information about the bridge and people falling from it and, you know, all these monsters and ghosts and so on. And it's dark and I'm sure something's going to go wrong with her flashlight. And uh, so this owl with a capital O showing up is just one more sign that maybe she should stay home. <laughs> As Ellie sped downhill, her wheels click-click-clicking double-time, the neighborhood was all cricket chirps and empty streets. People started work early in her blue-collar town. They might not be sleeping at 9 p.m., but they were settling down. Television screens project projected talk shows and sitcoms through uncovered windows. Near the base of the mountain, the buildings she passed abruptly changed from private homes to businesses. Ellie's brakes hissed against butyl rubber as she took a sharp turn onto Main Street. To the right, three men smoked pungent cigars outside a tavern called Roxy's. She parted their sour-smelling mist. Hey, slow down, one guy hollered, and she could not decide whether he sounded angry or amused. Brick factory buildings flanked the river, their facades crumbling, their windows dark and occasionally cracked. They used to manufacture plastics in town, and the chemical footprint persisted. White signs warned would-be fishermen, warning, catch and release only, heritonic fish and wildlife contaminated with PCBs. Near the bridge, somebody had vandalized a catch and release only sign with a skull and crossbones. It's like the skull that Ellie has. 
Ellie walked her bike across a rocky strip of weeds between the street and the bridge. Long grasses brushed her cotton pants, every tickle unnerving. She imagined disease-filled ticks scampering up her legs. Their bites would stitch a quilt of welts and ring-shaped rashes across her flesh. Her father counted every tick he extracted from dogs and cats at the public shelter. Every year, the number rose. They were either more abundant or more efficient hunters. Ellie had not decided which was worse. Before her, steel trusses jutted from the wide bridge deck and cut the sky into diamonds. At sunset, the slices of empty space resembled jewels on a giant's necklace. A metal walkway ran along one side of the bridge. The smooth, narrow surface was easier to bike across than gritty cement. Ellie jumped on her bike, then shifted to a higher gear and accelerated. Her legs burned from her calves to her thighs. Although she biked often, she also biked slowly, always mindful of her surroundings. But it was nighttime. Darkness obscured the view, and there were no pedestrians to avoid. Or so she thought. Halfway across the bridge, part of a low diagonal beam shifted. Somebody was trying to climb the great structure. Keyword? Trying. As Ellie approached, the person slipped a couple inches and dropped something. The object, which was suspiciously shaped like a spray paint can, fell into the river. Just passing through, Ellie shouted. She mentally reached for Kirby. He was at her side within seconds, in invisible comfort. Dead or alive, dogs could skip from deep nap unconscious to awake and ready for anything almost instantaneously. She envied their skill. The person flattened against the wide beam the same way squirrels put their bellies to the ground and froze when they were trying to escape notice. Ellie stopped, balancing on her bike wheels and one steadying foot, ready to ride at a moment's notice. Kirby was wagging his tail, acting like he knew the wannabe Spider-Man. Did he? Was this why Kirby had been so upset earlier? You okay? Ellie asked. She shone her flashlight on the climber. It illuminated his backside, an awkward angle. The butt did look familiar. Okay, I guess she uh, looks at people's butts a lot and studies them. Hmm. Awkward. Stand back, he called. I'm going to hop down. Okay, his voice sounded really familiar too, but she must be mistaken. Jay? Ellie asked. You cannot be. Hey, careful. Don't fall in the water. In an attempt to dismount from the beam, the climber swiveled around, chest against the metal, his feet dangling several feet above the deck. Then he dropped onto the walkway with a grateful thunk and roll. Yep, Ellie had seen that somersault before. It was him, Jay Ross. She and Jay met when their mothers attended the same Lamaze program. They weren't next-door neighbors, but they lived on the same block went to the same school, celebrated their birthdays together. Point was, Ellie knew Jay, and he'd never done graffiti more permanent than chalk on the sidewalk. Second point, Kirby also knew Jay well. Maybe Ellie didn't have to worry about her parents after all. Ellie propped up her bike on its wobbly kickstand. What are you doing? She asked. Ellie? Jay lifted one hand, his index finger extended, and poked her in the middle of the forehead. It is you! He laughed and ducked his head, embarrassed. Sorry, just had to know that you were solid. This bridge is supposed to be haunted. 
It is, she said. My dog's here. Are you okay? Kirby? Hey, boy. Are you taking a walk? So is Kirby freaked out because he knows Jay and likes Jay and Jay could have gotten hurt there on the bridge? Or could it still be the parents in danger? Or could it be something else? Also, we've gotten an answer to an earlier question. Can other people see ghost Kirby? And it appears, get it, appears, it appears that Jay can. Jay leaned over and wiggled his fingers, enticing the dog closer. Always excited to greet an old friend, Kirby ran up to him. Jay petted the shimmer over hot asphalt mirage that signaled an invisible ghost, mindful not to put his hand through Kirby's body. Ellie, did you catch my paint? He asked. The river caught it. He lightly smacked his own forehead. Always bring a backup. Of course I'd mess this up. And what is this exactly? Should I be worried? I just... It's personal. Don't worry. I can't continue without paint anyway. Right. Are you walking home? Want to borrow my jacket so cars can avoid you? For probably the first time ever, Jay wore black from chin to toe. His tennis shoes, sweats, and turtleneck were ripped from a catalog of cartoon burglar apparel. In fact, at certain angles, he resembled a floating head, a head with short blonde curls and wide-set hazel eyes. He and Ellie looked pretty different, which used to annoy her. As children, they'd pretend to be twins, but strangers didn't believe that a white Celtic and Nordic American boy and a brown Apache girl came from the same family. Thanks, he said, but it's fine. I'm wearing a yellow tank under this. Look, he whipped off the turtleneck so quickly that its fabric fluffed his hair with static electricity. That wouldn't do you any favors if you fell into the water, she said. Climbing human pyramids doesn't qualify you for this. Oh, no, I don't climb. I'm the base during stunts, Jay said, as if her misunderstanding of cheerleading procedures was the real issue. You should find a safer spot to vandalize. Or not vandalize at all. How about that? Ellie, I'm not here to paint, he said. It's Brittany. He slumped on the tracks with his knees tucked against his chest. Jay looked sad. Puppy in the rain sad. As much as Ellie loathed romantic relationship talk, she'd never been on a date, didn't plan to go on a date, and didn't know how to counsel or console friends about the whole dating thing, she couldn't leave a puppy in the rain. Brittany? She asked. Your girlfriend Brittany or the Brittany in chess club who hates you? Girlfriend, he said. Ex-girlfriend. I guess both Brittany's hate me now. Sorry, I didn't know. It just happened yesterday night. He wrapped a metal bar behind him. The last time we came here, she drew a heart on the bridge. It has our names in it. J plus Brit. I just want to draw a zigzag crack down the middle like it's broken. Uh-huh. Ellie paused, thoughtful. So, 20 minutes ago, did you feel a strong emotion? Fear, maybe? Not really, he said. Damn. We can brainstorm a safer graffiti plan tomorrow, okay? She said, gotta go. He stepped back, nodding. What's the rush, Ellie? Do you want company? Ah, uh, no thanks. She threw one leg over her bike and balanced on her tiptoes. I'm worried about my parents because, well, it's probably nothing. Doesn't matter. You have my number, he said. Need anything? Give me a call. Same here. 
she reached out to ruffle his hair, and Jay tucked his chin to help a five-foot-nothing buddy out. His scalp sh shocked her. That's supposed to be lucky, Jay said, smoothing down his hair. It occurred to her that luck could be bad. Mounting dread chased Ellie across the bridge, down a web of streets, and through the cinema parking lot. She sparted the bride family car, a battered-looking minivan, near the entrance. Her parents were the kind of people who enjoyed Monday night movies because the low traffic freed superior parking spots and theater seats. Flushed from the two-wheel exercise, Ellie leaned against the ticket booth and asked, When does the movie The Lonesome let out? Fifteen minutes, the employee said. His red vest and usher uniform was a couple sizes too loose. It made him seem too young for the night shift. Can I wait in the lobby? She asked. That's fine. Just stay behind the velvet rope. He seemed ambivalent to her bicycle, so Ellie wheeled it inside to prevent theft. Her mountain bike had new high-performance tires. Although their performance rating was based on grip, maneuverability, and durability, Ellie figured that they also performed well at attracting thieves. Plus, her bike was neon green, not the most subtle color. Inside the lobby, several Formica top tables were clustered behind, beside the concession stand. Popcorn kernels crunched under Ellie's tennis shoes and became lodged in their squiggly treads. She sat and basked in butter-smelling air, comforted by the relative calm. Her parents had made it to the movie theater in one piece. They weren't trapped in a burning wreck along the highway. If her mother or father had experienced an in-movie health crisis, one painful enough to trouble Kirby, there'd be EMTs outside and several missed calls on her phone. Still, Kirby didn't tuck his invisible tail and run through walls for fun. Who else did he know? Jay, Ellie, Ellie's parents, all safe. The goth neighbors used to love him, no surprise there, but they were a thousand miles away. Nothing she could do to help them. Kirby also cared about Ellie's grandparents, cousins, uncles, and aunts. Did she have their numbers? She scrolled through her DM history and found a two-year-old conversation with cousin Trevor. I'm feeling so many things right now. So the first thing that I'm feeling, because I love movies, I used to work in a movie theater, is the worst feeling in the world is stepping on popcorn kernels and getting them lodged in your shoes. So I'm, I'm annoyed. Uh, I'm a little bit wondering why the lobby is so dirty. Uh, and also like bringing your bike into a movie theater and just like hanging out there. That doesn't happen. Maybe in a small town. So that might be the answer to that. But another emotion that I'm feeling or another thought that uh, I'm having right now is, she has DM conversation histories in her phone that are over two years old. See, with me, uh, maybe it's just me, but as soon as I'm done with a conversation on my texting, I delete it. If Literally, that would drive me nuts. I would never be able to like have that organized feeling if I kept every single text message that I've ever had. <laughs> Although they used to be tight, Trevor's life became hectic after he married a teacher named Lenore Moore, moved to the Rio Grande Valley, and had a baby. The baby, now seven months old, 
had been born premature, almost dying twice in the neonatal intensive care unit. Little Gregory was doing well now, though, right? Oh, I really hope the baby doesn't die. Ma'am, do you need anything? The concession clerk asked, and it took Ellie a moment to accept that, at 17, she was now old enough to be called ma'am by strangers. No thanks, she said. She needed the night to end without death. She needed to be overreacting. She needed Kirby's fit to be a fluke. But were there needs or were they wants? Did Jay need to break a cartoon heart on a heritonic bridge? He acted like it. Risked his life for it. Maybe, sometimes, wants felt like needs. Because the alternative hurt too bad. A few minutes later, the post-movie crowd filled the lobby. Ellie left her bike propped against a table and found her parents near the bathrooms. Ellie, what the heck are you doing here? Her father asked. Luckily, he sounded more concerned than angry. You biked here? Her mother asked. In the dark? Do you realize how dangerous that is, Ellie? What if a car hit you? Your phone was off, she said. Plus, I have warning lights and Kirby came with me. Ellie took a gulp of water from the drinking fountain. Kirby freaked out. He was zipping through walls. The last time that happened, Grandpa... Hey, what's wrong? Her parents were glued to their smartphone screens. Six missed calls, her mother said. Are most of them from your brother? Her father asked. He called me too. Did he leave a message, Mom? Dad? Shh, Ellie, I'm listening to voicemail. What did Uncle want? Ellie asked, and she felt goosebumps rising on her arms. I don't know, but he sounds terrible, her mother said. I need to call him back. The family exited the theater and congregated around their minivan. The nearby mountains perspired. Soupy mist flavored every breath Ellie swallowed. She eavesdropped on one side of a conversation that became more frightening with every word. How bad is it? Was followed with, what did the doctor say? And is there any chance he'll wake up? Then... Ellie's mother started shaking so hard that she almost dropped her phone. That's how she cried. No tears, but lots of shivering, like her sorrow was an earthquake, not a storm. By the time the call ended, they were alone, and Ellie was terrified. Trevor was in a serious car accident, her mother explained. She bowed her head, already mourning. He's being treated at the Maria Northern Trauma Center. It probably will not save his life. Cousin Trevor? Ellie asked rhetorically, because who else could it be? Yes. Mom, Ellie said. She sounded shrill, desperate. If he dies, I can... Ellie? Her mother cut her off. No, but I... You must never... Raising her voice now. You must never. All humans, all of us, without exception, her father continued, because he was capable of calm speech. Practicing veterinary medicine had not hardened his heart, but it taught him how to restrain signs of pain. Human ghosts are terrible things. Ellie looked up to the sky. She saw an owl circling overhead. That is the first chapter of Elazzo by Darcy Little Badger. And now it's time for the three, two, one segment of this show. Three things I liked or thought about while reading that chapter to you. Two questions I have and one thing I learned. 
The first thing that I like about this first chapter is all the foreshadowing. So again, foreshadowing is when the author gives us hints about uh, things that might come later in the story. So we get the, the whole thing about that first owl that is kind of swooping around and gives her a bad feeling. Obviously, even before that, the, uh, the, the Kirby kind of getting freaked out that something is wrong and we come to find out something indeed is wrong. So little things like that, because I'm like, oh, that definitely means something. And when I find out that it does, in fact, mean something, I just feel really smart. The second thing that I like about uh, this first chapter is in so many books and movies and TV shows, when a character sees a ghost or anything like that, she doesn't or he doesn't uh, tell people because other people would think they're crazy for seeing a ghost. But in this book, it seems that that's normal. Or even if they don't believe her, that they don't hold it against her. So it's kind of refreshing, in fact, to have a story where, yeah, that's normal uh, for for Ellie, at least. So I like that about it, too. And a third thing I enjoyed, I, I mentioned the owl a moment ago, but I've always thought that owls are creepy. Uh, I know that some people think they're cute, and they are kind of cute, too. Part of their cuteness it might come from or might be because they're creepy or whatever, the other way around. But uh, this, this owl, again, um, connects to probably the Native American heritage and uh, being a symbol and so on. And I have a feeling we're going to see this owl a few more times. It's almost like in movies and books and TV shows where you see like vultures, uh, you know, overhead because vultures uh, usually uh, feast on dead things. And so while the owl is not a vulture, it is a sign uh, of bad things. And we see that Ellie sees the owl when she learns about her cousin Trevor. And I will also add that I like that the bad thing that happened was not to the baby because no one wants babies to get injured. And especially me, because my babies, my kids, I call them babies, but now they're nine years old, were born premature as well. So if that had happened, uh, I don't know if I could have liked this book. So I'm glad it didn't. Two questions I have, they kind of go together and we don't really, I didn't have really any questions until the very end of this chapter. But the first question is, can Ellie bring people back from the dead? Because remember, she says, mom, if he dies, I can. And she immediately, the mom cuts her off and says no. And her father says, that's always a terrible thing, human ghosts. So is she saying that she can somehow restore uh, Uncle Trevor, in this case, to, to life? And with that, why would that be a bad thing? Did she do the same to Kirby? Was Kirby dead? And she brought the Kirby dog back to ghost form. Uh, and that hasn't been a bad thing, right? So those two questions kind of roll together. I want to know, is this some sort of special power she has? And why would it be bad to have that done for a human? And finally, one thing I learned from reading this or one thing that I'm going to try, and that is I'm going to try next time I write a story to set it in an alternate version of America like this book is. So what that means is, and there are a lot of authors who have done this, where they have chosen an event in America's history and written a story based on, well, what if that had gone differently? So what if America hadn't won World War II, 
for example? How would things be different there? So what you can do and what I can do is pick really any major or it doesn't even have to be a major event. Pick any event that has happened to you or in the world and then write a story about what if the way that we know how it turned out actually it didn't go that way and if it's a war how the if the other side won or if it had somehow gone differently how would things be changed here in our world now or whenever so that should be fun to kind of make up an alternate history an alternate universe For the final segment of our show, we have the Jake-O-Meter, where I give chapter one of Alazzo a score on a scale of one to ten. One being awful, hated it, would not recommend it, will not continue, and ten being amazing, can't wait to read more. And so my score for Alazzo is, I think it's going to be an eight. Certainly not a terrible score. I'll tell you first what I liked about it. I love all of the mysteries that suddenly unfold in this chapter. I like Ellie. She seems like a a cool character and uh, very independent and unusual in the best of ways. So many questions I have, and I like that in the beginning of a book. Now, if I still have those questions by the end, that's a totally different story. But the only thing that's sort of holding me back is the supernatural element of it i love a ghost story but the whole thing about you know having a ghost dog and being able to kind of sense or predict that something has gone wrong somewhere else that would certainly be interesting if you know i had that or uh you know that the characters have that but i don't know it just uh is not my uh let's say my wheelhouse meaning it's not the kind of story that i would normally gravitate towards now the only reason that it's not a lower score in the jaco meter is because right from the get-go we are told that this is an alternate america this is an alternate universe so we take ourselves out of the reality of it a little bit. We know that this is not happening in our time and space. And so that helps a little bit with me go going along with it. But still, uh, I would just have preferred if it seemed a little bit more natural rather than super natural. And thus, we have arrived at the end of yet another episode of From the Top. My name is Jake Lewis. Today, we heard the first chapter of Elatso. That is spelled E-L-A-T-S-O-E. And it was written by Darcy Little Badger in honor of National Heritage Month for Native Americans. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you end up reading more of it, I'd love to hear your take. You can send me an email at from the top bookcast at gmail.com make sure you subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already to find out when the latest episode becomes available if you can write us a review of the podcast on whichever listening platform you use i would greatly appreciate it thank you in advance and we'll be back again next monday with another first chapter of a ya or middle grade novel hope you will join us for that until next time i'm jake lewis and i will see you from the top